1: I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts,
0: Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Greetings, greetings. I feel like I just called in and this is like uh, almost going on a live show. <laughs> hey, Max. How's it going? Uh, what is the show? Who is who is, uh, who, is uh, who is the guest this week? I have no idea. The guest this week is George Saunders. That is a, that
1: is a great and legitimate surprise. Uh, it is a great surprise. He has been on the show before, as you guys remember, which was... Um, Almost eight years ago now. Wow. <laughs> eight years ago. Eight years ago, George and I talked in uh, this tiny little back office at the McNally Jackson Bookstore in Soho. He was about to go on stage and do this like live event and uh, somehow was able to have this wonderful conversation with me amidst all this chaos around us. Um, it's like one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done and I don't know if you guys feel this way but sometimes with these these repeat guests like you're not totally sure you want to have them back on you know it's a little bit like going on like uh, some magical vacation a second time and like it might not live up to it but uh, I really want to talk to him anyway so I did it and it was fantastic uh, some things about George that you should know he just released a book this year it's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain and it's based on this class that he taught for years Um, at the MFA program at Syracuse. Uh, It's about short stories. And so in the book, he breaks down these short stories of these Russian masters, Chekhov, Tolstoy, a couple others. And the book is about how to really read those stories and also how to write and also about life. And uh, he's taking the idea of that book, which is basically like put this class in book form, and now he's doing it on Substack. He just started a substack. It's called Story Club, and he's going to use it to break down more short stories, and people can also ask him questions about writing and craft and all kinds of stuff. And then he's also going to write himself about writing. Uh, His first essay for that, for Story Club, is about revision, and we talked a lot about that essay and his ideas for revision. He's got this process that is very, very simple and incredibly brilliant and is about a lot more than just writing uh so anyway i went back on vacation with george saunders and it was terrific it sounds amazing max my only small disappointment is that i didn't get to be the sound engineer producer on this episode (laughs) which i was in a tiny yeah office in the basement of mcnally jackson as people were trying to get in the door and call on the phone so it's a little bit of a different environment i'm
2: glad you went back
1: yeah, Evan, we uh, we could have used your producing skills, man. It was another another uh, Zoom recording setup, which is really not the ideal way to have these conversations. But still, this one was uh, this one was worth it.
0: Uh, we are brought to you, of course, in partnership with Vox Media, who has started helping us make the show, thanks to them. And now here's Max with George Saunders.
1: Hey, George. How I'm all right, man. I'm, uh, I'm so happy to be doing this with you again.
2: Me too. Thank you for having me back.
1: Last time we were uh, in a bookstore in a back office, and uh, you know now we're three thousand miles away.
2: Yeah, it was a crowded bookstore with a ton of people and everybody cohabitating and breathing
1: was... on each other. Yeah, it was sweet. Uh, well, how are you, man?
2: I'm 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 good. I'm pretty happy. I just sent a book off, to, uh, a book of stories that I'm really happy about to Random House and um yeah, everything's everything's good, you know, considering the general shitstorm. I, I feel uh I've been I mean, for me the whole thing throughout has been trying to keep a you know, a positive attitude, try to be productive and it f- feels like it's, you know, I'm, I'm still doing that generally.
1: That's working for um, you?
2: I have a pandemic ponytail, which is not working for me, but you know.
1: <laughs> you look great. Yeah, but you can't,
2: that's because you can't see it.
1: It's, uh, it's around the back here. Right. Um, can I ask you one more question about that before we start talking about this Substack thing? Yeah. I think a lot of people I know have attempted to keep a positive attitude and stay in a decent place in this time. And it feels to me particularly like, I don't know, man, maybe it's this new variant, maybe it's the end of the year Who knows what it is, but there's something about the last couple of weeks that feels like even the people I've known who were doing a pretty good job of that are getting tired.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. I I think that's really true. The only thing that I've noticed in myself is I went from, okay, I'm going to hold my breath until this whole thing is done and we can get back to quote unquote real life, you know, and now I'm more like, oh, so maybe all those years, what I thought was real life was just a really fortunate bubble that we happened to be on. And maybe, you know, and if you look at history, it's true. You know, I mean, there was there have been far worse periods than this. So I'm trying to just say, well, uh, you know, no no exaggerated hope and no exaggerated despair and try to, you know, don't take it too hard. Uh, and, and I think, but, you know, one thing, uh, this might segue us into the subject thing, but I'm noticing that there is something really good, like objectively beneficial about trying to cheer people up. You know, like I, I've kind of gone back into my my habit of joking with people I don't know, like at, at stores and stuff. Uh huh. And um, and, and I'm like, you know, when someone does that with me, when someone reaches out to me in that way, it does kind of make you think, all right, we're you know, we're going to be okay. So I, I'm I'm kind of, um, I guess I'm just accepting that my previous view of what was normal was probably inflated, you know, and now here we are. So it's I guess it's just a. You know, like in every time, you at some point you have to say, okay, so this is what life is. And I had a projection about it, and I've just been corrected, you know. it, And now I have to sort of institute all the old verities, you know, about being a positive person, a good person, even in this sh- shitty moment. I, it reminds me a little bit when I, I went to call the Trump rallies in 2016, and I went out there with this idea that was actually wrong, which was that this Trump thing was a little blip, a small group of erratic people were making a clown show ha 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 let's go look at it and then of course it turned out that the clown show was like you know half the country or something and so so the thing is my understanding was wrong my my little projection of the world was invalid you know so that painful thing of going oh okay so the world isn't wrong it was me uh that's you know that's very literary actually you know when you think about it to kind of say yeah my mind makes this story about the world Uh, And now that I'm standing in it, it seems that my, my idea was too little. So now I have to let the world correct me. And I think that's what I'm feeling in these last few weeks when it is very despair making. But for me, if I, if I say, okay, yes, it is despair making. If you insist on clinging to your previous vision, but if you take this as a period when the universe is correcting your ass, (laughs) you know, (laughs) then it's a little more, at least it's more interesting or exciting, I guess, maybe, I don't know. We'll see.
1: If you can experience this just as a reminder that you were wrong before and will be wrong again.
2: Yeah, you're always wrong, actually, a little bit, you know, and and yeah. So uh, and then, you know, also, like, I, I think it's making me think like we have this wonderful dog uh, who's 15 years old and she's, you know, she's having some issues. And, you know, so it's like, OK, so is that important or not? Like if I can keep in good spirits about that, if I can really be helpful to her, is that a good thing or not? It's you got to say it is, you know. Even, you know, it's in the scale of the universe, you know, but but I think actually in the scale of the universe, that's kind of all you got, really. You know, the little the little pod around you uh, of things you can influence. And if in one's despair about the big pod, you forget to be attentive in the little pod, then you just threw away both games, you know, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. The ponytail There's no excuse for the ponytail. (laughs) I'm just saying that
1: (laughs) 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 all you can control is your bad pandemic hair. Exactly. And even that, I
2: just, I'm just one with it. I don't care.
1: (laughs) That reminds me a little bit of, um, the exact way you put it reminds me of the mantra that my, my wife and I had, uh, when we had babies, which was, um, never celebrate, never despair.
2: Exactly.
1: Like take nothing that they're doing well for granted and take nothing that's going poorly as forever.
2: That's perfect. That's really good. It's
1: going to change the next day anyway
2: that's perfect that's so true that's so wise that I think that I think Isaac Dennison is something about like that about writing you know I write a little every day without hope and without despair hmm. you know because when you think about it hope and despair or optimism and pessimism they're both kind of like wishful thinking and and the, the reason you do either one of those is to excuse yourself from the present moment you know like to, to sort of make go on autopilot I'm always optimistic you know you just drove a stick through my head thank you for the <laughs> co rack. Or, you know or I'm always pessimistic yeah. Yeah, those are pretty kind of pretty roses, but they're going to die. You know, it's all just trying to get off the hook of of struggle, I guess. Yeah. Um. Well, let's talk about this Substack.
1: I'm curious about it. Yeah. I will say when I when I found out that you were doing a Substack, I thought curious.
2: Yeah, I thought that too. I was curious about it too. <laughs> um, I. I, it's been so much fun i can't even tell you and i think the reason is it's somehow we got lucky and it feels like a continuation of my teaching thing uh that i've been doing at syracuse so i'm teaching less there now than i used to and uh this just kind of the last week or so it feels like um the feeling i used to get when you would start a class and go oh ho, ho, this is going to be good these are you know these people are smart and they're here for the right reasons so so far it's been just kind of blissful you know i'm just writing um little essay about revision, a little essay about just whatever occurs to me. And then pretty soon we're going to start doing, you know, looking at individual stories. But so far it's been incredibly fun.
1: And it feels really connected to the book you put out at the beginning of the year, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which was breaking down these sort of like uh, Russian Masters short stories. It's, it's in that spirit of the book. It was part of the idea to try and extend that teaching to sort of as many people As possible, like I read the book sort of as like, I'm going to take this class that I've taught for years at Syracuse and try and make the cost of it, you know, a a hardback. And and maybe the substack is like some way to try and expand that even further.
2: Yeah, it, it was that. And it was also selfishly that when I wrote that Russian book, it actually really helped my writing when I when I was done with it. I couldn't I was really surprised. I got kind of rejuvenated, you know, about the story. And then when the book came out, I got so many amazing letters and emails from people in a different tone than usual. Like usually if you, if you put out a book of fiction, you get some people saying, I really liked it. Other people saying, I want my money back or, you know, whatever. Uh,
1: people but, write you, I want my money back emails? Yeah, well, at least
2: one guy did. Yeah, one guy did. <laughs> one, one guy who I've thought about every day since. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. He's dominating my whole life. <laughs> I, I had writer's block for eight years because of Norm. Um <laughs> No, but so, so, but this, this, these emails were more like I want to play more. You know, here's what I thought about your interpretation. Here's what I think about this Tolstoy story, and it was so genuine and kind of, um, and and that was when I wrote the book. That was kind of one of the hopes was to do it in a tone that would welcome people in, even if they didn't like stories or they didn't like the Russians. It would just be kind of a wide doorway. So there was something about that, you know, to pick up on that energy that the book had created and go, hey, that was that's nice to be in that kind of a relation with people. I don't know if this is true, but. To some extent, when you're a writer, I don't know, it's a different job. A teacher, you're there to facilitate, and, and you're sort of there to get out of the way. And that is, uh, I like that feeling, you know, uh, as opposed to, here's my book, what'd you think? You know, this is like, oh, well, let's talk about these stories. So, yeah, so, so uh, Substack contacted me, and I didn't really know what it was or what it would be used for. And then somehow with like this moment when, oh, yeah, I could just keep, you know, there were like three or four stories that I couldn't get into the Russian book. Um, there's one by Chekhov and some Isaac Babel and stuff and and one by Tolstoy. And so I thought, oh yeah, I could just sort of finish those essays and then keep going. So, so far so good.
1: That all makes sense to me. And, and one of the things that, you know, I find striking about you is how relentlessly interested in human connection you are. It feels slightly, um, discordant with the like, uh, stereotype of the like writer alone in their shack, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I I understand that in that way. But you've also been writing and talking more, I think, in the last year than I've heard you before about your relationship to time and how much of it you have left. And I guess I I was interested in it as a choice, not not just as like what it would do, but but what you might have to give up in order to do this project. Like, is there is there something you can't do because you're doing this and, and how you think about that?
2: yeah well actually I died last week that's the weird <laughs> thing. And i'm that's why I'm so concerned about it you know I don't. no I you know I think actually I have a habit a bad habit of talking too much about age and but but it's it's interests me like the idea of getting older and that is happening to me is really fascinating because your whole life you see old people and you're like wow, that must be weird you know and then when you when you're on the inside it's really interesting you know the way it sort of happens or doesn't happen but also for me you know i've i noticed that uh I have a lot of energy. I'm kind of a hyper, you know, high strung uh, person. So just looking back at my, my writing life, I've always been the most productive when I overdid it a little bit. Like when I was teaching full time, you know, I finished a Lincoln book during a semester when I was teaching. So I, and then on, on the other hand, when I relax and try to make more space for my writing, I tend to slow down somehow or, or I think, you know, um, not by design, but I always put these things in front of myself. Like for a while, I wrote a column for The Guardian that was just a straight up humor column and, you know, try to play music. And somehow I think whatever process takes place in your subconscious to speed you up, uh, for me, that works by putting more inputs, you know, by doing a little more than I should be. Uh, So I think this, this it feels like that this week, I'm just like suddenly writing a lot more and feeling really fired up about it. So I think that's part of what I'll, I mean, i talked to my students about it. We have to you know, learn our own system. Like some people really do need eight hours of seclusion. They just do and no talking and other people can do it different ways. So there isn't any one, you know, set of requirements, but we have to learn our own a little bit. And for me to, to pile it on always has been helpful.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. It's like, uh, the less time that you have, the more you can do. I think so. Yeah.
2: There's something I, if I, um, I think maybe because my background, if I get too much time, I overthink things. Whereas if I have not enough time, I tend to operate more from sort of top of the mind intuition, which is actually not bad. I, I have a pretty good intuition. So um, it's just like if I have to do a meeting or something and I have a lot of, and I prep for it too much, then I go in like a robot. Whereas if you just throw me in there and I'm a little out of breath, I can usually rally, you know? So that's, a, but it's a combination of prep and then, you know, getting ready to be spontaneous.
1: But it's like prep and surrender.
2: Yes. <laughs> and your t-shirt with that. <laughs> prep and surrender.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word,
1: Well, this last thing you wrote about revision for the Substack, which is that idea, some of these ideas are are in the book as well, it feels connected to me to what you were just saying, particularly about intuition. Like, your process is so based in your own taste and intuition. Could could you walk me through your sort of, like, approach to revision? Because I think it could be helpful for people
2: listening. Sure, I mean, I, I you know for when I was younger, I had the idea that I think a lot of writers have, which is you have to know your shit and you have to then type it up you know like you you, you know what you want, your themes and your all this, and you then you just type it up and convey it and a related idea to that is that if you 're having fun while you're doing it, if it's happening in your mind as you're writing it, then it'll necessarily happen in the reader's mind, which I think isn't necessarily true, so I struggled with that for a long time i couldn't really um write anything that I liked in that mode. And also I was doing a lot of imitation of like Hemingway and Joyce. And, so on. and then at one point I was at work and I just had this breakthrough. This sounds so simple in retrospect, but it was just that I had to use the same energy in writing that I did in life. So at work I was kind of funny and kind of a, a little, sometimes too frank and, you know, um, and I knew a lot about pop culture and I was interested in it and all. So it was just this light going on. I'm like, Oh yeah, dummy, you, if you want to, charm a reader, you have to try. You know, you have to actually think of there being a person on the other end. And, and that was related to just a kind of a real simple revision method, which I now summarize and kind of scale model as, you know, you pick up your text that you wrote yesterday and you start reading it. And as you're reading it, you're kind of just watching. Uh, I always say it's like a little meter in your head. Like there's, there's one the size says P for positive and one N for negative. And as you're reading, your text or somebody else's, that need will fluctuate. It just naturally will. And that's related to, you know, uh, are you seeing the images? Do you want to keep reading? All that kind of stuff. So to me, the, the fundamental move, and it's so simple, it's a little bit ridiculous, but is can you, as you're reading, can you be aware of how interested you are? And can you be honest about the fact that every so often you're going to start boring yourself, even if it's your work? that's the gateway to revision. You know, if, if you are reading along paragraph one is great. Paragraph two, we're still in the positive. And in paragraph three, something, just a, even a slight inflection of that needle toward the negative happens. Well, most of us at that point panic and go, that needle is fucked up. It's wrong. <laughs> you know, this, this story was perfect yesterday. But the, you know, I'm saying the mature artistic things to go, all right, okay. And kind of turn to the story like it's a friend and go, hey, what's up? You know, you, you, you negatively inflected my needle. What's going on? (laughs) And if you, at that point, if you try again, try not to answer intellectually, but just with your kind of gut, you you usually know, you know, like, Oh, I have that Jaguar going up on two wheels. Huh? He's just pulling out of the driveway. That doesn't make sense. You know? So, so, or, you know, there's a, a simple grammatical mistake or you've done one of these things where you repeat the same idea three times, whatever, there's a million ways to go off. But I think that's, when i realized this it was so stunningly simple that i almost couldn't accept it but for me anyway and it's not for everybody for me it works you just read your work see what you think uh watch that needle and then do your best to make a positive edit and then you just keep going on and the next day you come back and read it again and you do it over and over and over and um, the iteration is a big part of it you do it over and over i guess the idea is that there's some wiser part of yourself that comes to bear on the text that is much smarter than you at any given moment. So the, the accretion of these dozens or hundreds of passes through, uh, and I know for a fact, it happens in my work, it elevates the thing up. It starts asking deeper questions. Uh, it starts being more charming. It starts doing a better job of anticipating where the reader is at every instant. Um, so it's, it's one technique. Uh, but I think probably every writer has some version of this. Intuition plus iteration. And then the finished product is smarter than you are. And yet it's still you. It is. Yeah. And I, I mean, when I read my stuff, I like I'm never mm. too happy with me like this person who's talking to you. I feel like, oh, God, you talk so fast and you're <laughs> so vague and, you know, you're so <laughs> nervous. And, but then um, when I've written a story for a year or two or whatever, how long it takes, that person is is actually the one that I feel I am inside myself, you know, more so. And I think it's because you're faced with literally probably tens of thousands of decisions on the road to finishing a story. And as you revise it, honestly, it's, it just starts, um, it kind of like winnows out your bullshit somehow. I don't know. You know, like you it, it, it disavows your easy charms and it makes you step up in a way that a first draft doesn't.
1: And then the point at the end is when you can go through the story and it's all in that P category.
2: Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And that can happen. And, you know, it's weird because when I was younger, that didn't happen. I would start not liking it, but now, uh, and and then there's a certain amount of generosity, like you go, well, okay, this part kicked ass the previous two hundred readings. today, I'm feeling a little constipated, so I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, like you do know, you know, you're not being but but over time, yeah, over time, um the story you've you've polished it to where every moment seems to be earning its keep, uh, and there's also like sometimes in an earlier draft, there's a feeling that of'll just. I think it, I think of it as sag like a certain place in the story you're like yeah it's written okay but I feel like there's something there's a bolder choice that I can make there you know I could put the character in a little more of a bind or I could you know those kind of things but that's all part of this thing of just noticing where the energy drops and yeah at, a, at some point you get to the last line and you're like yeah that's 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 it
1: it's so interesting that you think of that as not just your best self but your truest self yeah um i mean maybe those two things are just synonymous
2: i'm not sure i mean i also i don't want to make too much of it it's not like a mystical thing but but if you um you know how sometimes a a friend will come to you with a problem and maybe you're not prepared for this and sometimes you blow it and sometimes you get it just right you know sometimes you're just like oh that was a very good honest answer that you gave and other times you're like why were you so you know like avoidant or why did you Tell her exactly the wrong thing, you know so it, it's something like that like when you, when I read a story of mine that I'm finished with, I feel like i've uh kind of blurted out something with more integrity than I usually have, I guess, or more you know more truthfulness or more zing, you know something so which is i mean it makes sense in a way because you've gone through, and every time you've offended yourself you you try to do better
1: and part of the way that I think about that too is just in those moments where where you are genuinely helpful to someone in need or when you've got something that feels true it just means there's less static like you're just bringing less yes. static in those moments exactly. whatever it's the same thing it's the same thing we we're talking about at the beginning it's like whatever idea you
2: had you've let go of that yes and also there's a recession of the self i think that what we call the self like if you you know sometimes when i'm working with uh, an editor that i really like there's a feeling that both of you have receded and the story has come up almost like two doctors working on a patient. You know, you're, you you do not really care who made the incision. You want the thing to live, you know? So I think sometimes even in editing or when I'm writing a story about myself, all the ideas I had about it seem like sort of selfish. They're, they're like, Oh, these are my ideas mm-hmm. about my story and that, you know, reinforce my view of life. And the story goes, yeah, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> would you like me to be? Would you like me to be a bad version of myself and honor your ideas, George? Or would you like to be quiet for a minute and I can show you something that's going to be even better? So, so it is kind of a like the that uh, assertive self that I think is a valid part of writing. You know, it's, that's why we do it. But that part has the wisdom to kind of recede a little bit and listen to what you know. It's like. I always call it the energy of the story. Like the story actually, past a certain point, has things it wants to do, and, and you didn't put them there. You know, and Stuart Dyback, that great writer from Chicago, says, uh, you know, he says, a story is always talking to you, but the writer's job is to learn to listen to it.
1: Is that something that you can get better at with time, more comfortable with over time?
2: Sure, I think so. And it has to do with this revision thing, because what it means is you don't, like, the way that the story talks to you is through those, you know, thousands of micro decisions that you have to make. And some of them are so small, they're just silly. You know, it's not, it's not like the story is saying, you know, how do you feel about eternal life? It's just, you know, it's like a clause. You want to leave that clause in or cut it, you know, but every time you do that, you're, you're kind of slightly altering the direction of the story and you're altering the questions it's asking and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it's, it's almost like, okay, so there, there've been times where I, I'll, um, I'll have a story that's pretty good for four paragraphs. And then, in the fifth paragraph, there's something that I'm a little attached to. I like the sound of it, but every time I get there, that n- needle does a little bit of a drop because it's like ah, something's something's funny. And I've come to recognize that that's a place where the story's trying to assert itself. Like I've I've led it down the path to the right, and it's like ten steps in and going I don't like this. And even though I like the prose and I, I and the prose there would probably um, presuppose a certain direction for it that I've vetted and liked. The story is balking a little bit. So the move there is just to pop that thing right out, just put it in a different file for a while. And I always think of it like, okay, now the story is breathing. It's, it's like it's deciding where it wants to go. That's the story talking to you. It talks to you about being crappy sometimes, you know. <laughs> so one of the things is can you learn to identify your different crappinesses, you know. So for me, for example, I will sometimes get um, a really slick paragraph that's really well written and a little dictatorial will pop in there. And if I just go, no, 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 you're you're very nice. You look very, you really read well, but you're from someone else's story. Can you please step out for a minute? So that's all those kind of little tricks that are hard to articulate.
1: Those are beautiful clothes that just don't fit you.
2: Exactly. Give them to somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) Is there
1: any way in which that work, that process of revision is something that can get drawn out to the rest of your Life to your real life, which is the phrase
2: that you use all the time. I think I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that. I mean, it could be also the other way. It could be that I, you know, I like doing it because I like doing it in my real life. But the, but the idea would be, you know, you make a snap judgment about somebody, as we do. And of course, you do. Uh, the the revision corollary would be: Do you recognize that as a scale model that your mind has made? You just that's a first draft. You know, he's wearing a biker jacket. You know. He must be this, you know, whatever, and then just to have that little moment where you go, well, ah, yeah, well, maybe could be. It's not a bad guess, but let's. What's the cost of waiting for more data? You know, and he, and then he goes, oh, I'm on my way to. I'm a concert violinist, and I, you know, I, So so I think that's the challenge. Is you can you can, of course, I think the mind is made that way. You know, you see something and you and it makes a scale model, to protect you basically. Um, so I think both in life and in writing, you, part of the game is to go, okay, uh, I just want to understand that the scale model is just that, and I'm not wedded to it, and I can actually mechanically um, disconnect from it and wait for more data. So in a story, what you're doing is you put somebody down a certain way, and then you're kind of going, okay, is there anything else you, you want to say? You know, Or I, so far, you know, Mr. Character, you're a cliche. Can you give me something to make you more interesting? And then it'll say something. And I think in real life, you say, "I oh, I know you based on your appearance or your politics or whatever. And then just mechanically going, well, maybe I don't. I
1: understand. I understand you through my own cliches.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. So please stop contradicting me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to play the violin right now. <laughs> That's right. I remember going to, uh, I did a story, uh, that that story, we went to the Mexican border and I was with these um, Minutemen kind of embedded on, a, on an op on the, on the border, you know. And uh, and they were all like fatigued out, and they all had two or three guns. And I was like, "Oh God!" And then um, you know, the, the night wore on, and uh, they, the guns went down. We're all just sitting in the dirt, wishing we could go home. And this one guy turns out he was—he um, said, "Yeah, I am. I, um, next week, I'm going to be pretty busy. I got Renfair." <laughs> I'm like, "What? Really?" Said, "Yeah, yeah. I'm in I'm in Torturer's Guild, you know." And and then he then he says something about having met another guy through the Houston Ballet because one of them was a dancer, you know. And so it was a beautiful example of this. Where I knew, I, for eight hours, I thought I knew who he was, you know. He's a killer right-wing fascist militia guy. And suddenly he's, and he, he said this real sweet thing. He said, I, I used to be in the Houston Ballet. You wouldn't know it by looking at me because he's a little, little heavy. <laughs> well, that's so. a, I
1: mean, but that's this argument too for, for revision and time, which is if you'd left after hour six, you never would have known. Exactly. And so it's it, it can't just be removing your own cliches. Like, you've got to invest the time in order to get to that point.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful.
1: And I can imagine there are people that are listening who are on deadline in one way or another, who are hearing this and being like, yeah, sounds pretty great if you could do that. But how can this be helpful to people who are doing other kinds of creative work
2: where maybe they, the, the, the time is, feels more finite. Well, and, right. And the thing is, I mean, two things. One is we can just, uh, I mean, even when I'm writing a very, well, these pieces for subject. sometimes now they're turning around a little faster. Same thing. You just say every time you come to the page, okay, that previous draft, I was pretty sure let me now divest myself of any opinion about this. So if you can do that a number of times, it has the effect. The other thing is I'm, I'm working with a wonderful editor uh, and and the first post, she cut it down by half. And I had already cut it down, I thought, you know. Um, and she did a beautiful job of saying, if you take this out, it becomes more unified. I'm like, wow, great. Thank you, you know. So it, I think the, the, the truth is always there, you know. And, and we just have to figure out different ways of wringing of the, the BS out of ourselves quicker. Do you always take edits like that? Sure. If they're good, yeah, 100%. And these were great. They were great. And it, it's the same feeling. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly how I meant to do it. I just, I got blurry, you know, as we do. So I think in in these even in deadline situations that that's why God gave us editors, you know, is, to, is because they actually do um they can do if they're good that work of stepping outside of the attachment to the piece that we have. They don't have that. So they can see it more clearly. So I'm I'm you know I've been so lucky uh, to work with great editors and now I'm just like yeah, please, you know, give me more of that because a good editor will will see what you were trying to do in the mess that you made trying to do it
1: right they're just like a a form of
2: ego check exactly or they're you you know they're you if you hadn't confused yourself confused yourself by writing the thing you know
1: that seems like a really good editor
2: well I've had yeah I've worked with Andy Ward and Deborah Treisman and Bill Buford and now Samantha Story and they're all you know there's a certain type of person who really gets it that the writer and the editor are working in service of the piece and and that's when you find that it's it's gold
1: Do those people have something in common? Is there some magic thing about great editors?
2: Well, I think from what I can tell, it has something to do with, okay, having spent enough of your time in text that you lose your ego about it and you you see what's there and what could be there. But also sometimes you're willing to leave it alone if it's fine. That's another, I think, a really good check. If an editor will just say, yeah, this is great, leave it. Um, it might be a little bit like a conductor, you know, like a conductor of music. I mean, he, he loves the piece and the symphony does something, you know, he's working in his instincts are so strong about what serves the piece that it, there's no ego, really it's just like, no, of course you, you know, so I, I think it's an absence of ego or uh, apparent ego.
1: I feel like that's sort of what we've been talking about the whole
2: time. Yeah. Can I ask you some more ego questions? Oh, sure. I love it. It makes me feel so good about myself to answer them. (laughs) One of them is
1: the reception of your work and what your relationship is to it now. So we talked earlier about Norm and his and his one note (laughs) that, you know, gave you writer's block for eight years. But like, how much do you care about it now? You've won every award one can win. You've sold all the books one can sell. Like, how much does the reaction to your work matter to you at this point?
2: Well, honestly, probably less than it used to. I think that's true. But I also know how to look at it more self, selfishly. Like I, now I read reviews really to learn something, you know. And, and so sometimes you go, yeah, that's really not right or that's not relevant or maybe. But, I, but then every so often some, someone says something and you, and you just internalize it because it's useful. So, so in that sense, I'm still very much um, attuned to it. But also, I think as you as you work longer, you kind of see it's you against you, you know like you you have uh certain really very stubborn challenges that are personality based, and you have a you know i'm having uh I have lots of aspirations to put the world on the page as I feel it, but I haven't done that yet. so as as your own technical challenges get more stubborn, I guess then you become a little less tied into what other people think.
1: Can you tell me more about what what that means to put down on the page how the world feels to you?
2: Well, one is I don't know. I mean, in other words, it's never the case that I go, oh, I love life, and and I write, I love life. But it's that you're you're using your method that you develop all these years, and you're hoping that if you work it hard enough, it'll sort of inadvertently put on the page uh, a complexity and an affection that you actually feel. Even if it's dark, I don't care. Like, I had a story called Ghoul recently, and I really, I was like, I really like that story. That's confused as shit out of me. I'm not phoning it in. I There's some element of truth in it. So it's, it's, um, for, well, for me, it always comes down to this question of I really have so much affection for being alive, and I really enjoy it. And yet, I also am kind of, um, Leery about, you know, I'm I'm a little bit in negative-minded in a lot of ways too. Like I really think things are uh, tend to be fucked up, and so to try to get that in the right balance, and of course, I I think walking around in the world, I have it pretty much, you know, give or take. But to get that on the page in the right way, to, to sufficiently, you know, praise the loveliness of the world without being a sap, and also lacerate the world for being so goddamn mean, you know, to do those in the same story would be a great aspiration. And I haven't gotten there yet. Do you think that you will? I mean that probably not to my satisfaction unless I, you know, there's at eight hundred or something. But I I mean you can no, I don't think you have to feel that you will. You just have to feel that you're, you know, a fail better idea. you, you know. And and the truth is, you know, it's interesting. Having gotten some success and having having that anxiety kind of assuages a little bit, you see that it's really interesting that the essence of the thing is actually that little cycle we're in You desire to have an idea, you get an idea, you doubt the idea, you execute the idea, you're happy with it, and then you go back to the beginning again. And and there's never uh, an end zone dance, really. It's just, it's that cycle. And it, it occurred to me a few years ago that that's what it is. It's not like you get to the end and then you say, I finally did it. I'm a real writer, right? You know, I'm not, I'm not an erotic anymore. It's no, it's just that you, you, um... It's like if you're a mountain climber and your job is just to walk around the world, walking up a mountain to come back down. At some point you go, yeah, no, that's, this is what I do. And it feels a certain way when I'm starting out, another way when I'm almost done, another way when I'm finished and I'm waiting for the praise or the blame. But that that cycle itself is really fun if you recognize that that's pretty much all there is.
1: As opposed to like walking around the world, hoping you're going to find a mountain that just continues to go up forever.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Or, or a mountain that has a... A palace of, of celebrating Max at the top right. and you're infinitely happy and you're never doubtful, you know
1: that. Right. Just a, a mountain with a small sign with like a, you know, like a stick and just a, like a little piece of paper that
2: says you did it. Congratulations. <laughs> you've made it. You can relax now. Yeah. But that, that was for me a big, I and mean, I have to keep reminding myself of that because there is in this life and you hinted at it earlier, there's a lot of very addictive things that happen in terms of praise and success, success. And it's very, it's so easy. It happens just within a single day. You can be in a good relation to that stuff or a bad relation to it. You can be like feeding on sugar, you know, or you can have one Pez or whatever and go, oh, that was good. So there's kind of a, uh, it's up to you. And it's, it's, to me, it's become one of the really interesting ancillary benefits of this kind of life is that every day you have a, a really considerable chance to engage with your ego and see the way that that thing tricks you. Um, but so then I think that's, I mean, I talk about it with my students that part of the job is to, I think, you know, invoke all the energies that you have, like if you're ambitious and you're greedy for fame or money or whatever it is, uh, or you want to be whatever it is that got you to that, you know, to this place of writing in the first place, you have to invoke those energies because this is a really hard journey, you know, to, to write a book that you like is really, it takes everything, you know, so you can't, I don't think approach that with only part of your energies engaged. You can't just only have the holy energies engaged. You have to say, you know, just give me all the energy I can summon up. And then once you, you know, you start doing it and you get some success, then you have to keep working with that all the time.
1: Yeah. The last time we talked, I, I think towards the end, I, I basically just asked you like, what's your understanding of the meaning of life? yeah what uh, did I get which it was right? like a version of which is a ver- yeah, which was a version of basically like can you point me to that mountain with the sign right right like do you, it's like uh it's just like over there and to the left if you could if you could point me there that'd be great and and your answer was this wonderful thing that I've thought about again and again and again about the most sort of like uh open version of ourselves and just trying to be
2: there more of the time, yeah, I like that
1: yeah it was it was pretty good.
2: That that shows that I've gone totally static. That I I still agree with myself from six years ago about the meaning.
1: Well, part of the reason i bring it (laughs) up was I was wondering like how how you're doing with that.
2: Uh, pretty pretty good, I think. I mean, I'm um, for me it's it's a little bit of a struggle. I make an artificial struggle, I think, between a writing life and then a more sort of meditative or spiritual life. And I, I sometimes will tell myself this, which is, oh, once I get what I need from writing, I'll stop and I'll dedicate myself full-time to this idea about being open. And, you know, and I'd, I think that's probably nonsense, you know, because I, I see the ways in which I need work most when I'm writing, you know, writing and then also in the writing life. I see it has a tendency to put you out beyond your controlled boundaries more than anything else, both in the creative part, but I think also in the public part of it. But, yeah, I for me, the, the difficult thing is that being open sounds really good until it's nasty, you know, it's like, like right now it's this pandemic or whatever. It when, when the being open is not sort of new age blissful, but, but ragged and painful, then I think it's a little harder of a, of a deal. So I struggle with that. I
1: think. What, what does that look like? What
2: do you mean? Well, basically just, I guess if, if I, I find that I'm one of those people who, if I'm happy and things are going well, I start spouting the new age verities, you know, just be open to your experience, you know, and then if I'm being grouchy or something has gone wrong in, in my life, then I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shut up. <laughs> You'll be open. I don't want... Yeah, I mean, the same old, you know, dilemma.
1: How do you talk about the positive side of of openness and kindness? How do you talk about that and write about that without being savvy?
2: Well, I maybe don't, you know. I mean, I don't know that I do. But I think this, part of it for me was the, okay, so we... Uh, Paul and I have been married a long time. We have two wonderful kids. Uh, So many positive things have happened to us. And there have been so many times in our life and uh, my life beyond that where you just see people really doing extraordinarily good things, you know, just doing good things. And so at some point I started to feel like, wow, how weird is it that I don't talk about that stuff? You know, I mean, I think most of us live by trying to be decent. And, you know, like on this subject... There's the comments section, right? And people are so sweet to each it's other. It's
1: the most lovely group of people on the internet, I think.
2: It really is. I think I read
1: through was... all the comments today. It's just like sweetheart after sweetheart.
2: Yeah. So so what kind of literary tradition doesn't have that in it somewhere, you know? Uh our capacity to rise to occasions, our capacity to, you know, put our own interests aside for somebody else's benefit, and so on. So I think that was. For me, it kind of started when I did that kindness speech. And that was just a quick impulse to say, you know, at whatever old I was at that point, one of the big lies seems to be that mankind is only rapacious, you know. Uh, And and it felt to me that one of the flaws in at least my stories was that I didn't, I wasn't making occasions for goodness to show up, I felt like, you know. So it seemed to me like to start talking about it. uh, But not, you know, it's it's only... um, it's only sappy if you say it will solve everything, I think. Or if you underestimate how hard it is, like, just be kind. Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> I'm going to stamp on your foot. Let's see how you do. <laughs> but but to say, no, yeah, even in extreme circumstances, there is a version of kindness. There should be. And then also to say, okay, kindness, great. What does that really mean? Like, what rooms does that open into if you start really thinking about it? And then, you, and then, of course, you realize this is what Eastern traditions have been doing for thousands of years. They they were never stupid enough to deny that kindness was a thing and that it was worth doing and it. it was really difficult. So we're just maybe a little behind the curve. But also, uh, but so many of our Western philosophers, too, have, have basically been talking about that in, in a different guise, I think.
1: So part of that work is understanding that
2: um, you're not the first person to whom that has occurred. Oh, God, yeah, 100%. In fact, that's the, that's the amazing thing is that's all anybody worthwhile has been talking about all along, really. I mean, you know... And again, if you say kindness and you put a picture of a rose, it's a little sappy. But if you say, you know, your day tomorrow is going to be literally 15,000 chances to inflect in one direction or the other. And we can say kindness or not, but you could also say presence or not or love or not or, you know, uh, that's really true. That's that's a fact. That's a scientific fact, really, you know. So then if you think, well, if I did something that would cause me to inflect positively more than negatively over the course of 80 years, that's a big difference, you know. Uh, that, to me, just feels like, yeah, that's, that's science.
1: It's science, and, and it's also that thing we were talking about at the beginning, which is, like, you can't do that if, you, uh, if you've already decided what those 15,000 instances are going to be before you get there. Right, and I think
2: also what I'm finding is you can't do that without failing a lot. You know, like, like to, I think there's sometimes in, the, in, like, the metaphysics of kindness, there's a certain kind of person who, uh, when I, after I did that graduation speech, I was on the radio, and there was some really funny sequence of calls this, one guy said, uh, uh, "Yeah, I, I just want to say I totally believe in kindness. People are stupid; they don't get that." You know that was one. And, and then the other, the other, another lady called and said, I love what you're saying about kindness. It's so true. I think it's especially true of Americans in Europe, not so much. You know. <laughs> so there's always with any good idea, there's a, we can make uh, you know a suit of armor out of it, and 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 you know, embrace it without really. Admitting that we mostly can't do it, which is certainly the case for me.
1: I got one more thing for you and I'll let you go, which is ending projects, ending creative projects. Um, I'm interested in how you approach that moment in your own work. I wonder if you have thoughts on that.
2: Well, the only thing I've ever found that that was helpful to me is that when I, because, you know, stories, you can get in these really crazy neurotic cycles where you really don't know what to do you know especially when you're trying to end them and I I always try to have this little heroic voice in my head which is like well you know this is part of it you know this is why it's going to be so great when you finish it because it's it's almost like somebody at the top of the mountain going come on come on yes I know it's deep but you know so some of that uh and then I guess too for me it's it's kind of like all right so I think part of this thing about trusting the subconscious and trusting the process is that When I get to a place where I'm blocked, you know, when it's it's really difficult, uh, not in the kind of fun, difficult, but like truly self-doubting, you know, and you call yourself a professional, that kind of feeling. Um, I, I, I try to say, well, okay, that's the piece is telling me something. And again, if I listen to it, I can solve it. I can. You know, it's almost like if your car isn't starting, it's still a car and you know, if you if you had the right tools and the right mind and the right openness, you could you could fix it. Of course you could. You know, but most of us with writing, I think you, the car doesn't work. and You're like, oh, ah, I'm a terrible driver, you know, or you, you, you bail out. So for me, it's I, I tell myself the story that the bigger the obstruction, the bigger the payoff. Like if the story is really blocking me, that's because it has a very high version of itself in mind that I'm having seen yet you know like so so sort of like a practice of kind of constituting patience. uh so yeah so i try to say to myself the reason the story is fighting you so hard is that it has something it wants to do that you're not capable of imagining yet and that the way to get to that is by obliging it in small ways like the um your your objections to your work is where the clues are you know when you get to like i remember I, i had that story sea oak many years ago, and I had written a, a part of it, like maybe it's about a, a half, maybe, uh, up to where this aunt dies, you know, and I did a nice job on her funeral, and I really liked that, and then I was like, oh, God, and I sat there for, I didn't sit there, I worked on it for like three years of trying to get to, to see what, and I wrote all these different endings, you know, different alternative endings, and I just was really stuck, and it was doubly stuck, because I really liked what I had done already, there was nothing wrong with it, you know, so I, I was... um Mostly beating myself up about the fact that I was now teaching at Syracuse. How can you teach when you can't even finish the story? Blah, blah, blah. So I was in the shower one day, actually. And I, and I was just thinking to myself, I know you killed off that aunt. She's the most interesting person. I know she's got to come back. And I tried everything. I had her come back in memories and dreams. And So I just was saying, ah. And re- really what I was doing in retrospect was I was just intoning the problem. Like, she has to come back. She has to come back. And then my mind just went from the dead, just like, I mean, literally just, you know, the way you hear a voice in your head or, or, and, um, and I'm like, Oh yeah, of course that's it. You know? And then I finished it like in in three weeks after that. But that was a case where it was an inadvertent moment of admitting to myself what was bugging me about it. And then the subconscious just went, Oh, now that you've admitted it, you know, and once you can admit it, you can do so and not take it personally. 100%. Yeah. Because you know, it's true. Like I knew that was right. I knew, you know, and then, um, I, I know, again, it's like the car thing, you know, if, if your car breaks down you're like, no, it didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I
1: mean, you're not <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't be the kind of person with a car that breaks down. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Right. But, if, but then if you go, yeah, yeah, and you get out and open the hood, you're already sort of there, you know, you're getting there. Yeah. But so, I don't know, I say that, but then I, you know, I, I just was in the same situation myself and I just was pissed off, basically, three or four days.
1: Yeah. And then that ends too. Yeah. George, thank you for doing this, man.
2: It was a—it's pl- always a pleasure. And next time we'll do it back in the public bookstore. I really hope so too.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly. Thanks to him. Thanks to our intern, Noel Mateer. Thanks to everyone at MailChimp and Vox for making this show possible this year. And thanks to George. The substack we've been talking about is called Story Club. Go sign up. If you like this podcast, you're going to like Story Club. And his latest book is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. We're going to take a couple of weeks off. We're going to put through some of our favorite episodes for the next couple of weeks, but we'll be back in 2022. See you then. Thanks for listening.